Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2103 of our trek. And our purpose is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Beginning today, I will share messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This first series of messages will cover the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. I pray that it will be a conduit for learning and encouragement. Listen as I share God's word with you today. Okay, this week at least, I'm going to try speaking from the pulpit here. Um, I'm more comfortable without a pulpit in front of me, so if you don't see it here next week, I might bring a stool and just sit instead. But our passage today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And this is on page 1501 in your pew Bibles. And this is about the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to read those two verses, and that's all we're going to cover today. It's not that we're going to have a super short sermon, so don't get too excited. But we're going to do the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount today. So let me read those first two verses. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he, and he began to teach them, saying, and the rest of what he's saying, we'll wait till next week, because we want to look at the Sermon on the Mount, the upside-down culture. And this is just going to be an introduction to what the Sermon on the Mount is. The Sermon on the Mount, we think of the Beatitudes, but that's only a very short portion of it. The Sermon on the Mount actually covered, covers Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It's 107 verses total in the Sermon on the Mount. And since you've given me the privilege to, to speak, at least for now, we're going to look at probably about the next seven to eight weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it will be one that we can all learn from. The Sermon on the Mount, as I said, covers Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and it's Matthew's version of the good news. And it's probably the best-known part of the teachings of Jesus, though it may be possibly the least understood and also the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered. And we think a manifesto at least comes to my mind, the Communist Manifesto, which was a set of instructions on how to be a communist. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto on how we as his disciples, as believers, what our marching orders are to establish the kingdom of God. It is a description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. And in my mind, Two words sum up his intentions that Christ had for Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and it indicates more clearly the challenge of our modern world, and it is the Christian counterculture. Paul, as we were leaving today, Paul looked back and says, oh, I thought you didn't have an object lesson for today, as I carried out the globe in this container. The Sermon on the Mount is a Christian counterculture, and you think about culture, and it's what the world is living by today. And Christian counterculture turns that world upside down. 
because we don't follow the culture of the world. So think about it as I'm talking today about a culture being upside down. And I realize that King Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that there's no new thing under the sun. And that's so true. But still, with our ever-advancing technologies and ability to communicate instantly to the entire world at once, it appears that a need for a Christian counterculture is more necessary than ever before when we take heart the manifesto that Christ preached on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we've seen in the past several decades a spirit of disillusionment. Each rising generation that comes up is disillusioned with the world that they inherited. I know it was in my days. And sometimes the reaction is rather naive, though that is not to say that it's not sincere. There were times in the past, and I think about, I was in high school in the early 70s, and that was just coming off the end of the Vietnam War. I was one of the last people to ever receive a draft card in our country. And during that period of time, we saw riots and we saw violence throughout the world, especially in the U.S. If you remember the L.A. riots, and we saw bombings, and we saw destruction. And the pandemic of the last 18 months has brought to the forefront what has been brewing under the surface for several decades. It has accelerated so much in our world today anything from education to the workplace to this Christian counterculture. The events and philosophies have been put into overdrive. When you consider the violent uprisings of the last couple of years, the riots, BLM, critical race theory, wokeness, cancel culture, entitlement mentality, and many other movements that we read about almost every day. And it seems like the, the wheels have fallen off the bus called common sense. And to me, it looks like somebody's been out there passing out crazy pills. Our society has just gone. And it's not just the US either. You see it in London, you see it across the globe. I don't know who passed out so many crazy pills, but man, have they been effective. And it's not just the young adults anymore. Adults of all ages are being influenced. And of course, the presence of our 24-7 opinion cast, with the talking heads constantly pushing their own agenda on all sides of the fence. Add to that instant online social media. Now anyone, anywhere, can have a bully pulpit to spew their doctrine. And when we begin to despair, which I'm not a despairing person, but there's some days I think, man, what's the world coming to? We have to remind ourselves again that although the noise of the world today may be a bit louder than it has been in the past, there's nothing new under the sun. In a way, Christians should find this disturbing alternative reality that's so prevalent in our culture, one that we can be hopeful, even exciting, excited by, the signs of the times. For we recognize that the activity of God's Spirit within us, if you think back to when you came to know the Lord, 
The Holy Spirit was, before he was our comforter that we have today, he was our disruptor. He made us uneasy. He knew we could not live as we were. And we know our current society, find, in order to find true peace and comfort, the only way that they'll be able to do so is through the spirit of peace. And those who are pressing so hard against this Christian counterculture are doing so because they desperately seek peace in their own souls. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 25 through 27, Jesus tells us, If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in glory, the glory of his Father, and will judge all people according to their deeds. The current culture is looking for all the right things, such as acceptance, equality, inclusion, meaning, peace, love, and reality, but they're looking for them all in the wrong places. The first place that our culture should be willing to turn to is the church, but they ignore it. Too often they see the church as not as a Christian counterculture turning the culture upside down, but they see the church in many cases conforming or setting a, rule, setting a set of rules and expectations that are not actually found in Scripture. An unfair set of rules and expectations. They perceive not new life, but the death of morality. And I opened up with this essential information, the background to our understanding on the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon is found in Matthew's Gospel toward the beginning of his public ministry. Immediately after Jesus' baptism and temptation, he announced at that point the good news that the kingdom of God, which was long promised since the Old Testament, is now on the threshold. Jesus had come to inaugurate the kingdom of God, and with him a new age had dawned, and a new rule of God had broken into history. No longer are we under the old law. The Sermon on the Mount, then, is to be seen in context. It portrays repentance, which is the Greek word metanoa, which means to have a complete change of mind, resulting in right living that belongs to the kingdom. It describes what human life and human community look like when they come under the gracious rule of God. The Sermon on the Mount is culture turned upside down. What do living and community look like as we're building God's kingdom? Certainly something different than our culture displays today. Jesus emphasized to his faithful followers, the citizens of God's kingdom, which are, includes us, that we are to be entirely different than our current culture. That they were not to take cue from the people around them, but from him. To prove that they were genuine children of the Heavenly Father. A key text in the Sermon on the Mount appears about halfway through the sermon in Matthew chapter 6, 8, and it simply says, don't be like them. God had called Abraham, think about Abraham, was called to leave his home and to build a new nation that was distinct and set apart from all the other nations. The Sermon on the Mount is the New Testament version of that. Christ calls us, his church, to establish God's kingdom on earth comprised of 
Who? All nations. Not just the nation of Israel, which the Old Testament was focused on, but God's kingdom through Christ is the entire world. All nations are involved in the kingdom of God. Our character is to be utterly distinct, both from and admired by the world. And this is represented in next week's message as we cover the Beatitudes. We are, to, we are to shine like lights in the prevailing darkness. Our right living is to exceed those of our modern culture who believe that they lead a crusade to a new world order. And we hear that phrase, new world order, today. And we think possibly negatively about a new world order. And from the current culture, that may be true. The Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to be learning about over the next few weeks, is the new world order. As we establish God's kingdom throughout the entire world. In God's kingdom, and we have to keep this in mind because it's so easy for me and others to fall into, it's more than the U.S. It involves the entire world. Every passage on the Sermon on the Mount shows a contrast between the Christian counterculture and today's modern culture. But we seem to think, or it seems to us, that the current culture is increasing on an ever-rapid pace. Especially the last couple of years, or the last few years, 10 years maybe. It just seems like it's snowballing. But there's a purpose for that. Every passage of the Sermon on the Mount shows a contrast between the current culture, Christian culture, and the modern culture. It's the underlying and united theme of the sermon, and it touches every aspect of our lives. We as followers of Jesus are to be different, but we're to be different both from the church traditions that are not based on God's word and also different from the secular world. We are to be different both from the religious, as Christ so often preached, and the irreligious, those who don't acknowledge God. The Sermon on the Mount is a complete definition anywhere which is contained in the New Testament of a Christian counterculture. It's a Christian value system, an ethical standard, religious devotion. It talks about our attitude to money, ambition, lifestyle, and a network of relationships, all of which are opposite to those in the non-Christian world today, which is today's modern culture. Today's Christian counterculture is a life of building God's kingdom. A fully human life indeed, but a life that is ruled by a divine rule. And today, as we read at the beginning, we looked at two verses, which is just the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me read it again. One day he saw the crowds gathering. Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples had gathered around him, and he began to teach. There can be little doubt that Jesus purposely went up on the mountain to teach, to draw a parallel between he and Moses. Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. For although Jesus is greater than Moses, 
And although his message is the good news and not the law, he did choose 12 apostles, or 12 disciples, as his nucleus of the new Israel to correspond to the 12 patriarchs and tribes of the Old Covenant. Jesus also claimed to be both teacher and Lord, and he gave authoritative interpretation of Moses' law, those issued commands, and his expected obedience. He later invited his disciples to take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, which was in contrast to the Old Testament law that the, the nation of Israel lived under, which was a heavy yoke of burden. Christ was saying, my yoke is not that way. At all events where we see Jesus teaching, Jesus sat down to teach. How is that different between what we do, how we do church now, where the congregation is sitting and the preacher's up here standing? Maybe next week I'll sit down during the message. The reason was that Jesus took on the posture of a rabbi or legislator, and the disciples gathered around him, and they listened to his, his teaching as he began to teach. And as we consider the Sermon on the Mount, three questions may come to our minds. The first one is, is what Matthew written, wrote, authentic teaches, teachings of Jesus? Are they authentic? Second, are the contents relevant to the contemporary world, or are they hopelessly out of date? Do they apply to us today? And third, are its standards attainable, or do we dismiss them largely as unpractical idealism? So let me look at those three areas today. First, was the sermon authentic? The Sermon on the Mount occupies the first gospel, which is the Gospel of Matthew. But there's a similar sermon in Luke's gospel, sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. And we don't hear that very often. At least I had not been familiar with it. And Luke says it was delivered on a level place to which Jesus came down after going into the hills to pray. But the apparent difference in location need not detain us. For a level place may well have been not a plain or a valley, but a plateau within the mountains. A comparison of the contents of the two sermons reveal at once that they not, are not identical. Luke's is considerably shorter, consisting of only 30 verses, in contrast to Matthew's 107 verses. And each includes materials that are not present in the other listing of it. Nevertheless, there are obvious similarities between them because both sermons begin with the Beatitudes. Both end with the parable of two house builders. And in between contains the golden rule, the commands to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek, the prohibition against judging people, a vivid illustration of a log or speck in your eye, and of the tree and its fruit. With the shared beginning and ending, the common material suggests that these two are versions of the same sermon. Bible scholars have some questions as whether these passages are actually given in one setting or not, or were an accumulation of Christ's teaching during his earthly ministry. Now, since we believe that all scripture is inspired, 
God allowed Matthew and Luke to record his teachings using their own unique personalities and styles into a form that we call a sermon, which is a means for us to grasp grasp Christ's teachings. Both give us the precise historical and geographical details, ascribing his early ministry in Galilee and starting to deliver this message on the mountain or on a level place in the hills. Matthew records records the astonishing reaction of the crowds when he had finished, primarily because of the authority to which, in which he had spoken. And both of them say when it was over that he entered into Capernaum. It is believed that Luke gives a briefer summary, omitting a good deal while Matthew records more of his sermon, if not most of it. Another thought is that Matthew may be elaborating on the shorter sermon and adding context that were part of Christ's teaching. And you can imagine an evangelist who goes from church to church, and they may have very similar messages between each one. And that's what Christ did when he went about teaching. He taught a lot of the same message or saw a lot of the same lessons. And we just see snapshots of it in the New Testament. So possibly Matthew gathered some of the other teachings and included it within his version of the Sermon on the Mount. But we know for sure that the Holy Spirit directed the selection and the arrangement of the scripture as recorded in Matthew. The second major point is, is the sermon relevant for today? Some people in our modern culture question whether the sermon was relevant for today's everyday life. We can only judge this by detailing the exam- or a detailed examination of the context. What is immediately remarkable, however, is that it was, forms a wonderfully coherent whole. It represents a behavior that Jesus expected from each of his disciples, who were also citizens of God's kingdom. Now, we love to talk about our citizenship in the U.S., and I'm all for that. And I'm all for getting your citizenship in the way the laws are structured. But do we think about our citizenship in God's kingdom? Because if we're believers, that makes us automatically citizens of God's kingdom. No different than if we're born in the United States, we're automatically citizens of the U.S. As believers, born into Christ, we become citizens of God's kingdom. We see Jesus in the message as himself, in his heart, his motives, his thoughts, the secret places with his Father. We also see Jesus in the arena of public life. We see his relationships to his fellow humans. He is showing mercy, making peace, being persecuted, acting as salt, letting his light shine, loving and serving others, even his enemies, and devoting himself, above all, to the extension of God's kingdom and righteousness throughout the world. I want to go through, if you give me the grace as a church, to speak on in the next few weeks on the next seven areas that we'll focus on. And as I prepare for these messages, I'll be covering the following aspects as they integrate into our lives. So these are just titles, almost, of what we'll be looking at in the next seven weeks. First of all is the Christian character, which is Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. 
The Beatitudes emphasize eight principal marks of Christian character and conduct, especially in relation to God and humans, and the divine blessing that rests to those who exhibit those characteristics. The next will be our Christian influence, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. The two metaphors in that lesson will be salt and light, and they indicate the influence of for good of which Christians can extend to the community if, and only if, they maintain the distinctive characteristics that are found in the Beatitudes. The next will be Christian righteousness, which is Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. What is the Christian's attitude to the moral law of God? Should the Old Testament be abolished in our Christian life? Is Jesus advocating for a new set of morals not under the law? Jesus said that he had, come to had not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He stated that the greatness of God's kingdom was determined by conformity to his moral teachings. Jesus taught that the entry into the kingdom was possible without, was not, was impossible without righteousness greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus gives six illustrations of greater Christian purity relating to murder, adult, adultery, divorce, swearing, revenge, and love. And in each contrast, he rejected the easygoing tradition of the scribes and reaffirmed the Old Testament scripture and drew out a full and exacting implication of God's moral law. The next one will be Christian righteousness, which is Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In their religious devotions, Christians resemble neither the hypocritical display of the Pharisees nor the mechanical formalism of pagans. Christian righteousness is to be marked above all reality by the sincerity of God's children who live in their Heavenly Father's presence. Are our lives so distinct that the culture of today can see the difference in our lives? Or do we blend into their culture? The fifth one will be the Christian ambition, which is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. The worldliness which Christians are to avoid can take either a religious or a secular shape. We can be religious and no closer to God than if we were secular, as were the scribes and the Pharisee of Jesus' day. So are we different from non-Christians, not only in our devotions, but also in our ambitions. In particular, Christ changes our attitude about material wealth and possessions. It's impossible to worship God and money. We have to choose between them. Secular people are preoccupied with their quest for food, drink, and clothing. Christians are to be free from these self-centered and materialistic existences. And instead, we're to give the, ourselves to spread, the God, spread God's rule and God's righteousness. Our supreme authority, ambition is to be the glory of God and not to be concerned about recognition or even material well-being. The question is, what do we seek first? The sixth lesson will be the Christian relationship, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 20. Christians are caught up in a complex world network of relationships. Each one of our relationships arises out of our relationship to Christ. Once we are correctly related to Christ and we become believers, 
our other relationships are affected. Now, if you weren't a Christian, would you be here today in our church? The relationships that we form at Putnam are because of our relationship with Christ. And relationships outside the church have to change once we accept Christ. We were prone to drinking before, and we spent a lot of time in the bars. Do those relationships change once we accept Christ? New relationships are created. Old relationships are changed. We're not to judge our brothers, but to serve them. We are to avoid offering the gospel. We are not also to avoid offering the gospel to those who have just totally rejected Christ. And we're to keep praying to our Heavenly Father, and we're to be aware of false prophets that hinder people from finding the narrow gate and the hard way. And the seventh lesson that we'll look at in the Sermon on the Mount will be the Christian commitment, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. And the ultimate issue posed by the whole sermon concerns the authority of the preacher. Was Christ real? The fundamental question is whether we mean what we say and do what we hear. On this commitment hangs our eternal destiny. We are, we are wise only when we obey Christ as Lord, for he is building a house whose foundation is on the rock, not on shifting sands. And the storms of adversity and judgment will never be able to undermine the foundation that we, <clears throat> that we have. And when we conclude the Sermon on the Mount, some seven weeks hence, we will see the crowds were astonished by the authority that Jesus taught. It's authority to which followers of Jesus in every generation must submit. So to answer the second overall question, we understand that the Lordship of Christ is relevant today, both in principle and in detail, as it was when he originally preached the Sermon on the Mount. And the last major area as we wrap up, was the sermon practical? The third question is that of a pragmatist or realist. It is one thing to be convinced that the sermon relevance in theory, but quite another to be sure that it will work in practice. Are the standards even attainable, or must we rest content in admiring them wistfully from afar? When we consider the reality of human perversity, are the sermon standards on the mount unpracticable or unattainable? Should we say that the ideals are noble but unpractical? Are they attractive to imagine but impossible to fulfill? If we know something of our self-asserted egotism, which I'm certainly plagued with, how can we then be, be meek? If we know how our absolute sexual passions are, how can we refrain from lustful looks and thoughts? If the cares of the world absorbs us, how can we then be forbidden from worrying? If, if, known, if we are known for our proneness to anger and our thirst for revenge, which I think all of us struggle with, at least I'm putting myself in that camp, how can we expect it to be love our enemies? 
And more than this, is it not a requirement to turn the other cheek to the assailant? Is that not dangerous to our health of our society? Is it not beyond the attainment of an individual? And does not encourage further violence? After these questions, we may conclude that the Sermon on the Mount is of no practical value to individuals or communities. At best, it re represents an unpractical idealism of a visionary is a dream which could never come true. And at the beginning, I said that the Sermon on the Mount was best characterized by a Christian counterculture where the world is turned upside down from what the culture, Christian counterculture is upside down from the world, I should say. And if that's the case, Jesus is making exceptional demands for an exceptional situation. It's an upside down from today's culture. Only when we understand that our primary purpose as believers is to promote and build God's kingdom will we be able to understand and apply Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Otherwise, we will view his teachings as foolish optimism or hopeless despair. Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount to those who were already his disciples. It wasn't preached to those that didn't know him. We are his disciples, but we're also citizens of God's kingdom and children of God's family. His high standards, he said, are appropriate only for those who are building his kingdom. Should we expect the, the modern culture to adopt the Sermon on the Mount? No, it wasn't intended for them until they become part of God's kingdom. And then it becomes the manifesto that they are to live by. If we are his disciples, we follow his manifesto. We do not, indeed we could not, achieve this privileged status by attaining Christ's standards. Instead, by fulfilling his standards, we give evidence to God's free grace and the gift that are already ours. It's not that Christians are upside down to the world. What it is, is as we build God's kingdom, we turn the world right side up. Because when God's kingdom is fully manifested, all will be right with the world. We'll no longer be on our heads. But Christ's kingdom, as we build it, and it's our responsibility as believers, as his disciples, as citizens of God's heaven, to turn the world right side up. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day.
every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.